you've understood that this chapter and what we're going to look at this morning is all about how God keeps his promises. And what I want us to see beyond that is, is not just that God keeps his promises, God keeps his promises ultimately and finally and perfectly in Jesus. So we're not just seeing that God keeps his promises for us, for the sake of it, God keeps his promises in Jesus. As we gather this morning, um, frazzled, some of us, by the week that we've had, and facing maybe another frazzling week next week, we need to know that we can have complete confidence in God's promises. We need to know that God keeps all of his promises, all 8,810, is it? All of them. In the 2010 general election, the Liberal Democrats, um, all of their candidates took a vow that they would oppose any increase in university tuition fees. And a few months later, as part of the new government, almost half of them voted to increase them. In 2008, Barack Obama vowed, if I get into power, I will close Guantanamo Bay Detention Center. And 13 years later, it's still open. You could go on and on, couldn't you? Donald Trump didn't build his wall. Our current government haven't and won't keep all the promises. And if we're being charitable, what we'll say is, well, those promises haven't just been broken for the sake of it. You know, circumstance and political realities have, have probably had an influence why they couldn't keep those promises. But they haven't kept them. And maybe you've been hurt by people breaking promises to you. Maybe not politicians, but maybe family members, church members, church leaders, bosses. Maybe you've broken promises. I'm sure we all have. We've promised things and, and not delivered. Maybe as a result of that, we've actually lost people's trust. Sometimes it's because people are untrustworthy. Sometimes it's because we just can't deliver on what we promise. And depending on what the promise is, it, it can be frustrating, it can be painful, it can be very costly when it gets broken. And what I want us to see this morning is we, we can absolutely trust God's promises for the future based on what we've seen of him keeping his promises in the past. God's got a proven track record that he always keeps his promises. And because we know he always keeps his promises, we know that he always will keep his promises. And ultimately, he keeps his promises in Jesus. If you're listening in at home or, or wherever you are, we want you to know this, that God will never, ever let you down. We let him down. I let him down every day. You will let God down. God will never, ever let you down. And as we see David crowned as king over all Israel in, this, in these verses this morning, we see several of God's promises fulfilled, but we're going to look at three promises. We're going to spend the first half of our time looking at three promises, and we'll begin to see then, once we've looked at these three promises, we'll look at how God prospers David's kingdom. So the bigger story is that David's kingdom is pointing us to Jesus' kingdom. I hope you've seen that as we're going through. And it does it particularly powerful in this passage. This chapter is a brilliant example of how passages in the Old Testament point us to Jesus. It's a brilliant example of how God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus. 
and we can have absolute confidence. We're going to break the passage down into two parts. First part is that God keeps his promises. Second part is that God prospers his king. God keeps his promises and prospers his king. So firstly, God keeps his promises. It's ever so clear as we dig down into this passage that it's pointing us to how God keeps his promises in Jesus. We see it in three ways. Firstly, we see David becomes king. Now we can work out if we're clever with our sums. David's 37 in this passage. Same age as John. David's 37. It's been 20 years plus since Samuel anointed him and said that he's going to be king. And David had to wait 20 years. Imagine those 20 plus years. There'd have been loads of times, wouldn't there, when being king felt far from what David was experiencing. David probably didn't feel much like the anointed king when he was running for his life from Saul. He probably didn't feel like a king when he was hiding in a cave. He probably didn't feel like a king when he was having to dribble and drool and pretend to be crazy before the Philistines so that they'd take him in. I'm sure there'd have been huge times of doubt during those 20 odd years when David would have thought, I'm never going to be king. Waiting's hard, isn't it? Especially when there's no sign of things that we're waiting for happening. We think, I I can never see this happening. I trust you, Lord, but I can't ever see it. But look at what happens in the first few verses. In verse 1, representatives from all the 12 tribes come together at Hebron. Remember, there's been loads of division amongst the tribes of Israel, haven't they? Well, they all come together here, and they all vowed to be loyal to David. They recognize, they look at in times past, verse 2. In times past, we know the Lord said that you would shepherd and rule Israel. Hold on to that, because we'll come back to that in a bit. So, so in the first couple of verses, we see that God's 20-odd year promise to David has been fulfilled. All Israel come and recognize him as king. Secondly, the, the second promise is that David inherits Jerusalem. We might miss this if we're not careful, but we read about it from verse 6 to 8. There's these people called the Jebusites, and they occupy Jerusalem. They've set up a fortress on on the hill of Zion. And as David and his troops approach, the Jebusites mock them. And they say, even our blind and lame can repel you. What they're saying is, even our weakest people, we don't even need to put our best soldiers out, David. Our weakest people will defend Zion against you. Zion was, it was a mega fortress, it was on a hill, it was high walls, it was steep, it it was pretty much impenetrable, and the Jebusites felt unbeatable. So they say to David, even our weakest will defeat you, David, you've got no chance. There were even a water tunnel from this fortress in Zion that ran down to the river, so even if there were a siege, they could get water supply. And David says to his men, whoever climbs that water tower... And defeats the Jebusites, I'll, I'll honour you. And they do. The, 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 the water tower that had been built to, to bring water and, and, and protect the city, David's men climb up it and they take Zion, defeat the Jebusites, and establish Jerusalem as the capital of the kingdom. First time that had happened. What's the significance of that? Well, in Genesis 15, God had made the promises, some of which Gary talked about, the promises and the covenant with Abraham. 
And, and God had promised to Abraham, amongst other things, he said, I'm going to give you a land of your own. And, and God lists all these nations, and he said, I'm going to drive out these nations from before you, and you're going to have the land. And the last name on the list that God gives Abraham in Genesis 15, the last name is the Jebusites. So in this list of nation and people that gets repeated, it, it gets repeated in Genesis, it gets repeated in Exodus, it gets repeated in Numbers. All these nations, the same nations, God says, I'll drive these people out and give you the land. And we come, we come to this time in 2 Samuel and every nation's been defeated, every nation's been driven out almost. In Joshua 15 we read about this conquest and Israel undertake this massive conquest of the land and they throw out all the nations but the chapter ends like this in Joshua 15 but as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem the children of Judah could not drive them out the Jebusites dwell with them at Judah, at Jerusalem to this day. In Judges 1 there's a similar story of conquest and that chapter ends but the children of Benjamin didn't drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem, the Jebusites dwell in Jerusalem to this day. See, Israel had tried and tried and tried. They couldn't defeat the Jebusites. They were the last enemy within the land. And this thousand-year-old promise hadn't happened because they couldn't defeat the Jebusites. But God's king defeated them. A 20-odd-year-old promise, David, you'll become king. Now a thousand plus year promise, your enemies will be defeated before you and you'll have the land. There isn't an expiry date on God's promises, is there? Sometimes we have to wait a year, ten years, a thousand years, two thousand years. God's promises do come to pass. And finally we see one more promise fulfilled. And we read about it from verse 17. I'd love to have spent more time on this. But, but the Philistines had been a plague to Israel for centuries. That bullied them. That persecuted them. That killed them. That occupied them. And the Philistines in the Bible, they're a picture, just like Babylon is when we come to Revelation. They're a picture of everything that represents the enemies of God's people. They're a picture of secular society. They're a picture of... of, of all the other religions that, that impose themselves and, and bully Christianity. They're a picture of Satan's kingdom. They're Israel's greatest enemy. You know, that have captured the ark and defiled it. That harassed Israel. That killed Saul. That killed Jonathan and, and stuck their heads in the cities. But in 2 Samuel 3, we read that God had promised to deliver the people from the Philistines through David. And here it happens. And even in it happening, David says, Lord, what, what should I do? Should I, should I go? And the Lord says, go, and I'll, I'll deliver him. And then David says, should I, what should I do? And the Lord says, stay, and I'll deliver him. And, and God keeps his promise to David, and David routes the Philistines, and the Philistines are never, ever a threat again during David's reign. Three promises, one 20 years old, one 1,000 years old, and another, I don't know how many years old, but against their ancient enemies. There's no expiry date on God's promises, but he does keep all of his promises. And more than that, I want us to see that the way God keeps his promises is through his anointed king. All these promises this morning were kept through God's anointed king, David. But all of God's promises, ultimately, are kept through his anointed king, Jesus. 
And that's what I think the second part of the chapter is about, how God prospers his king. And we see it from verse 9 to 15. Just to, just to explain the structure of the, of the passage, the three promises we looked at, they all happen at the beginning of David's reign. Even though one of them is mentioned at the end of the passage, so you have, the, you have the David becoming king, you have the Jebusites being defeated, and then at the end of the passage you have the Philistines. Well, all those th- three things happened at the beginning of David's reign. But verses 9 to 15, they're, they're a summary of, of the whole of David's reign. So, so in the middle of the, this, the, this chronological period, you, you've got, we, we step back and we say, right, let's, let's have a look at David's reign as a whole. And that's what verse 9 to 15 are, a summary spanning the 33 years of David's reign as king. And the picture they paint is this, God prospers his king. God builds his kingdom. And first we see that's what happened. David builds up Jerusalem. It wasn't a very big place. You know, the, the hill of Zion's his fortress. But God has, God has established his king on his hill of Zion. And we read that David's family and David's household grow. And he builds, he builds the stronghold all around Jerusalem. He extends it, if you like. So, so Jerusalem isn't just this stronghold. Now it becomes a great city. During David's reign, it becomes a great city. And God's blessing his king. We read in verse 10, the Lord of hosts is with David. So at some point in David's reign, the king of Tyre, he sends down a load of cedar trees and a load of carpenters and masons, and they build David a house. And we read verse 12, this is ever so important, this verse, that the Lord, David knew that the Lord had established him as king and exalted him as king for the sake of his people Israel. Really important verse, that is. Why did God raise up his king? For the sake of his people. David understood God had put him in the position he was in for the sake of his people. David was to be a king unlike other kings. All kings were served. But David was to be different. David was to be a servant king. All kings told people what to do. David was called to shepherd God's people. And I think in that we see such a clear pointer to King Jesus, don't we? Why has, why has God exalted Jesus to be king? Well, he's done it for the sake of his people. In Mark 10, we read that Jesus is the servant king. Even if we look at verse 1, as the tribes come to David, they say to David, we are your flesh and your bone. Where else in the Bible do we hear that language, we are your flesh and we are your bone? Well, we hear it first in Genesis 2. We hear it in Ephesians 5. And what it's saying is this, that David was to be, to Israel, a faithful husband to his people. David was to be their protector. David was to be to the people everything that Jesus is to us. He was to be their leader, he was to be their shepherd, and he was to be their husband. And we see as well that David prospers as his family grows, and this bit's a bit difficult. The fact that David's family grows is good. It's a blessing from God. It's a pointer to how Jesus' family will grow. But the way that David's family grows isn't good. And it reminds us of this, that our search for leadership, our search for a shepherd, our search for deliverance never comes from people. 
because people are sinners. David's weakness shows us we need a better king than David. We read particularly that David took more concubines and more wives and then had loads of kids. That's not good. Ultimately, that would prove to be David's downfall. Now, it was permitted to have more than one wife, but it wasn't advised. There were political reasons why they might take another wife. You know, they might enter into a covenant with another king. There were moral reasons. So if if a brother died, another brother was expected to take on their family. But it wasn't what God wanted. It wasn't what God designed. God's design for sex has always been one man, one woman in a marriage. God said in, in Deuteronomy 17, kings do not multiply wives for yourselves. And it raises a really serious point because we're looking at David as this, this example, but, but David sins, he doesn't just sin, he sins greatly. He takes lots of wives, lots of lovers. It's terrible. Because God made man and woman to be one flesh. So what should we do with David? You know, we're building David up. He's this picture of God's king. Why does God so often praise David and say he's a man after my heart when David was an adulterer? What should we do with David? You must have heard or seen recently particularly this thing called cancel culture. And basically it's this, that there's, there's big moves at, at present to cancel from history, cancel from the records, cancel from education, people who did bad things even if they also did good things. So, so example, I'm sure you saw on the news earlier in lockdown, um, the footage of the protesters ripping down statues of famous people. Saw them? Because they had links to slavery. One of the things at the moment, Winston Churchill's, um, they're talking about cancelling Winston Churchill from the school curriculum because he said some things that were racist, and he did. It was in the news last week that there's a call for Disney's Snow White to either be cancelled or changed because she was woken uh, by a kiss that she hadn't consented to. That's a true story. From the ridiculous to some that make sense. So what should we do when we hear all this thing about cancel culture at the minute? Because at the minute it's saying anyone that does anything bad, we've got to erase them from history books. So should we not teach our children about Winston Churchill and how he was influential in World War I because he also did some bad things? Should we rip down statues of Admiral Nelson because he said and did some bad things? Martin Luther, the, the great reform, we have the Reformation because of Luther. But Luther said some terrible things about the Jews. Should we cancel Luther? John Calvin, amazing bloke, returned a blind eye when one of his enemies were murdered. Do we cancel John Calvin and his teachings? Jonathan Edwards, used greatly by God in America, he had links to slavery. Abram had lots of wives. Jacob was a liar. David was an adulterer. Moses killed someone. Should we cancel these people? Is that the way that we deal with people who fail and people who do terrible things? Do we cancel them? Well, I think these people remind us, I think David reminds us, one, we have to be very careful about setting up heroes. And two, only Jesus is trustworthy. If I was to scour through your life, if everything you'd done in your life was put on social media, 
Because that's what they do at the minute. They trail back through people's social media. If everything you'd done in your life were on social media, and I trawled through it all, would I find reason for you to be cancelled? You'd find it with me. I should be cancelled. I've said things and done things. But, but David serves to teach us. Yeah, he teaches lots about leadership, lots about faith. But we're a sinner. And what he teaches is, is that God is gracious to sinners. He doesn't cancel us. Ultimately, the, 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 the king that God promised, King Jesus, he cancelled David's sin. He'd do it on the cross. God doesn't overlook David's sin. God doesn't overlook your sin. But he doesn't cancel us like we deserve. This is really relevant because we live in a society, don't we? Our society preaches tolerance. Our society preaches absolute liberty. But then we, we, we want to cancel people who do things wrong. It's because our society doesn't understand God's forgiveness. They don't understand God's grace. And so this liberal, full of freedom society is probably one of the most morally oppressive societies around. Because it doesn't grasp grace. What about you and me? We deserve to be cancelled. We deserve to be wiped out. None of us, Lord, if you're mar your market iniquity, who would stand? But in his mercy, God's appointed a greater king than David. A king that never, ever ever did anything wrong a king who was tempted in all the ways that we are but without sin so that our king didn't have to cancel us he could cancel our sin Psalm 2 tells us despite the best efforts of wicked people God has established his king on his holy hill of Zion we don't get cancelled because of our sin. There's a better way than cancelling people. It's redeeming people. Our king came to lead. He came to shepherd. He came to lay down his life for his people. All the things that David were called to do. And despite all the enemies to our king, despite secular society, despite persecution, despite my sin and despite your sin, God has established his king in Zion. Not David, King Jesus. And King Jesus' kingdom's growing, not through dodgy marriages, but through grace. King Jesus, his, his family's having children every day, through grace, through people not being cancelled, being redeemed. King Jesus has established God's kingdom and God's king for the sake of his people. Just like God promised Jesus, his anointed king, his kingdom will grow, his kingdom will be established. That's what's happening. You could say, if you like, Jerusalem's getting bigger. And where do we fit into all this? I think it's here that we, we can say in all the anarchy of the world that we live in, in all, we, we can't see how things are going to work out. We can't see how God's promises fit in with our current situation. It's understanding this. God has set his king in Zion. And he will be victorious over his enemies like David was over the Philistines. And he will build his kingdom like David built Jerusalem. And he will lead and he will shepherd and he will husband his people.
And because we can look back at God's promises being fulfilled in David, because we can look back on God's promises being fulfilled in Jesus, we can be certain that the promises for the future will be fulfilled. God has set his, his king on his holy hill. So how is it going to end? Revelation 21 tells us how it's going to end. You know, we, we, we've, we've seen God promise, God's promises from a thousand years back with Abraham. We've seen them from 20 years back with David. We've seen that after David, the promise of Jesus, another thousand years. Well, it's been another 2,000 years now. What's happening? Are, are we ever going what, to, what's, what's going to happen ultimately? We've waited 2,000 years. Well, Revelation 21 says this, this is what's going to happen. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. There was no more sea. I saw, I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. God's king will return. And when he returns, he'll bring with him all of his family up from over the centuries. And he'll gather all of those who are his family who are still alive and love him. And he'll gather us all. And Jerusalem won't just be a city that's been extended a bit. It'll fill the whole earth. God kept his promises of 20 years to David. He kept his promise of a thousand years to Abraham. He kept his promise of another thousand years to David that a king had come for the sake of his people. Frazzled, this is how we started, frazzled and with a frazzling week to come, how do we keep going? God has set his king on his holy hill of Zion. It's been 2,000 years, but he will keep his promises. He will make us new. We will be with him forever. He will husband us. And as we look at the world we live in and we look at the families we live in and we look at the battles of sin that we live in, we say, Lord, how long until you keep your promise to come back and take me home? How long, Lord? And the answer comes to us from 2 Peter. Beloved, do not forget this. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. God isn't working to our time scale. There isn't an expiry date on his promises. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. The reason Jesus hasn't kept that promise of returning yet is because he's, he's, he's giving people time to be saved. But Peter goes on, but the day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord will come. One day God's king will return and he'll take us with him to be on the new earth, the new as the new Jerusalem forever. So as we gather this morning, frazzled, by the week we've had, with another frazzling week to come, we need to know that we can have confidence in God in absolutely everything because God keeps his promises. We're going to sing that we can stand on every promise of his word.
Let me close by continuing that passage in 2 Peter.